to uh, this episode of the Postural Restoration Podcast. Uh, I'm so excited today to sit down with, you know, a, a longtime PRI, um, really a mentor for many of us in the area of pediatrics and a professional in that realm in so many different areas. Um, today we're joined by Lisa Mangino, who uh, Lisa, I'll, I'll list off a few of your credentials here and, and maybe we'll get into them a little bit deeper as we discuss your history. But Lisa's a, a PT and coincidentally um, holds both a physical therapy degree, a master's degree, and also a doctorate degree from Duke University right when they were transitioning into their uh, doctoral program. And, and I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong here, Lisa, but I believe you might have been the first class for that DPT program. Yes, actually, RJ, first, thanks so much for having me. I'm just so happy to and honored to be able to sit down and chat with you. So yeah, actually, I actually have two master's degrees. Uh, I got a master's in physiology from Penn State after I finished my bachelor's as kind of a way to try to make myself look a little more attractive for PT school. Um, because back in the day, you know, they only took 30 people in a class. Now they're taking upwards of 80. So it was really competitive and it took me a couple of years to even get into PT school. But then, yes, you're right. I went to Duke um, where I entered in a master's level program. And then in my second year, they offered us the opportunity to stay. So two masters and two PT degrees, kind of. Kind of, yeah. yeah it's so, a lot. Yeah. Well, and besides that, Lisa, um, you know, we're going to get into really what excites me the most about having you on and I think what excites, you know, a lot of your colleagues and, and people within PRI is, is your involvement in the realm of pediatrics. And it's really at the heart and soul of, of who you are. But going off of that, you also have, you know, some certifications with neurodevelopmental treatment approaches to peds. Um, throughout the APTA, you have a pediatric specialist certification. And then also we'll get into kind of your setting within uh, your current clinical practice and your, your Schroth um, implementation and involvement with the, with the Schroth Institute. So, you know, it's, it's so exciting. And again, I'm, I'm so grateful to have you and share kind of your story and, and your expertise with everyone listening. If you don't mind, we'll jump right into, you know, some of that history we briefly already mentioned. Lisa, before even, you know, you mentioned getting a master's uh, degree before applying for physical therapy, but uh, just quickly mention really what got you involved in, you know, human anatomy in general and, and what got you looking at, you know, degrees like physiology and, and physical therapy and, and um, you know, how you how you had the desire to, to even go in this route? So it kind of just evolved organically. Like when I went to Penn State for undergrad, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was in the division of undergraduate studies, which just means you're in college, but you basically don't know where you want to go. Yeah, pre-health type of thing. Yeah, I just knew that I really liked biology in high school. It was like my favorite teacher, my favorite class. I was always fascinated by cells and just all things science. And so I just was like, okay, I'll be a bio major. And then through my work in biology, just, you know, felt like that was the right fit for me and science and just really enjoyed it. And then, um, you know, I played three sports in high school and I played lacrosse at Penn State and 
you know, visited the trainer, visited the physical therapist. I was actually a goalkeeper. So if anyone's to injuries, injured, it's going to yeah. be the one who's standing in the way of the ball. So on purpose, right? So anyway, yeah, that was kind of my exposure to the world of physical therapy. So it was a, a first hand personal experience with it. And so then I started applying to PT school after college. And, you know, you mentioned the, just how competitive the nature of, of that was back then, which, you know, I think it's fair to say it, it still is today, as you said, they might be accepting, you know, class sizes vary, but is there something in particular that, that drew you to Duke or, you know, you ended up staying there for longer than school, which we'll get into, but, um, you know, was that just hindsight or, you know, you applied and got in or, or what drew you to that? University. So honestly, RJ, don't tell anybody, but that was <laughs> the place I got in. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's Isn't that crazy. So I was all, I had, I applied to a couple of schools in England because I was just having trouble getting accepted. You know, yeah. I played a sport, like I said, and my GPA wasn't as stellar as it was in high school. And so um, I just, I was on my way to university. I think it was uh, Nottingham University or something. And I was on the waiting list a couple different years at Duke and my number finally came up. And so, I mean, at the time it was the number two school in the country. Exactly. So yeah. I'm like, you know, number 15 won't let me in, but Duke's going to let me in. I'm a blue devil. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> like, okay, no problem. <laughs> well, and, and like I said, it's so awesome because, you know, your history was just getting started with Duke and, and we'll get into kind of some of your longer stint of, of time spent there, but, um, turns out just sometimes you have to wait for the right you know the right place yeah. at the right time and and it works out and honestly uh, it really worked out because I don't know if you know but I'm pretty pretty juvenile like I'm pretty immature like that's probably why I love working with kids because I can be a a goofball and get paid for it well I was gonna so, say either either that's why you work with kids or that's what the working with kids turns you yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I come by it, honestly. I mean, I think I'm not sure I was really ready to jump into a master, you know, like that type of a professional program. So I don't know. It worked out well. I got to spend some time being a job coach for adults with special needs. And I was a manager at a health club for a while, you know, just trying to build my resume to get into PT school. And I think all that experience really helped yeah. me and served me well. So yeah. it's been a fun journey. And I just can't, I have to mention, I cannot imagine you, you know, I don't mean this in a bad way, but, you know, little Lisa, petite little Lisa standing in a gold, <laughs> gold box there with, I just would pay to see, you know, some footage of, of your lacrosse days. And I can't, ah! I can't imagine the injuries that you, that you incurred. So I'll just say lots of padding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. You probably <laughs> yeah, doubled your size just with all the gear. Well, Lisa, you know, after you graduated, I believe uh, your first PT degree was around 1999, and then you followed up with the DPT, like you said, about a year later once they transitioned mm -hmm. that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I want to briefly mention or talk about who some of your um, early mentors were throughout school. I know there's some PRI, um, you know, personnel, if you will, that, that are, you know, really part of the, the Duke system. And particularly, um, you know, I know Kim Kaiser was there early on while, 
while you were either in school or shortly after, but talk to us a little bit about the transition from actually earning your final degree in 2000 and then moving on to more of a, a role within the university itself and, and your first kind of professional experience during that time. Okay. So first I do want to mention, um, you know, I, when I was in PT school, pediatrics was like the last thing on my mind, quite honestly. And I was all about sports. Like I knew I needed to have a sports affiliation and I wanted to go help athletes. And because I did the transitional DPT, they gave us the opportunity. Well, they made us do an extra, I think three month long affiliation, clinical rotation. And so I just said to myself, if I don't do pediatrics now, I'm never going to do it. So I might as well do it and have fun and see what it's like. And that was like why I'm here today, that decision. And Laura Case and um, some of the other clinicians at Duke were my pediatric mentors. And um, they, just, they just demonstrated how much fun it was and how much impact you could have and how rewarding it was. And that's pretty much where I fell in love with peds. And then I just, you know, I did my last clinical there. So they offered me a job and that's kind of how I stayed there. And then fast forward a little bit, I was playing in a women's adult lacrosse league and my injuries came back, right? Cause I'm kind of, actually I was on the field, not in the goal. So that was a better thing. But <laughs> anyway, um, that's when I kind of went back to Kim Kaiser. So I did a sports rotation at Duke with Kim Kaiser and a couple other clinicians there, Andrea Gallagher, who's now Andrea Hoff. But I knew that's where I should go back because I knew they were, you know, great clinicians. And that's when, that was probably about 2008, 2009, where I got interested and it really made a huge difference. And so I was sitting in my first class in 2009 with James being an acute pediatric PT with this room full of sports people, trainers, you know, um, people who maybe didn't believe in the science, people who did. So it was a very interesting dynamic. And I'm going, what am I doing? I, you know, see. Did I walk in the wrong room? Yeah. Yeah. Am I in the wrong place? Exactly. But the material was just so compelling and it just made so much sense. And I remember going back to work after the, the weekend course noticing all these patterns and, you know, things in the kids too, because obviously they are patterned as well. Yeah. So it was kind of a nice, just um, nice transition. Nice. It just made sense. So then I started pursuing it and taking classes. Yeah. Well, I kind of, uh, I guess, jumped the gun a little bit because Kim would be the one to kind of introduce you to PRI later on after your first exposure to pediatrics. So if we just take one step back, I, I want to kind of draw on your memory here and see if you can remember kind of those early years in the pediatric setting. I know throughout Duke, you had, you had various settings, um, you know, within the hospital itself, then you had some time in home health and then, you know, over an outpatient. Um, and some of that obviously probably progresses into those later years, but what were some of the big differences with, you know, how you early on were treating pediatrics or looking at pediatrics through a traditional PT, pediatric specialty within physical therapy. And then that transition to seeing these patterns and what we would say compensation that even, you know, even these kiddos have at an early age and, and what you're doing now. 
but what were some of the traditional ways that you first looked at pediatrics and some of the traditional practices that you that you learned you know early on in those first years yeah so i have to say i was really fortunate to be able to work at a major medical center that was so big and um, had such a variety of a patient caseload. I mean, some of the sickest kids came to Duke. It's a bone marrow transplant unit. And um, it really was a great first place to just get in there and see a lot of different stuff. Um, we did casting and fitting for AFOs and um, wheelchair assessment, you know, other equipment evaluations and just um, really worked a lot on how can we maximize compensations for function? Um, I think it began to get a little bit more monotonous when there, you know, you're just you're just doing so much stretching and or molding and yeah. work because you know, especially I mean, when you're a pe pediatric therapist, you're going to see probably a high percentage of kids with cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or you know other neurological diseases and, and processes. And so you have to deal with the spasticity and tone. And back then we really just spent half the session stretching them. And I think I just, you know, as I started to learn more about respiration and learning from James Anderson in my first class and then subsequent people as I took more classes, like the respiratory system is such a great hack to the nervous system. You know, it's, it's definitely challenging to do that in a population who might not be able to follow directions for whatever reason. Um, but even just to get your hands on their rib cage and know what to do and their pelvis and treat the egg, so to speak, or treat the thorax and the pelvis as a means to an end to try to get to the hamstrings that are so super tight that they're gonna get Botox in next week. You know what yeah. I mean? So um, yeah, it just, I think it just kind of evolved from there. Well, and, you know, I've talked to other uh, guests on our, on our podcast about just um, even recently, you know, the, the value of PRI being able to address these patterns, you know, as you mentioned, neurologically, and it doesn't matter if they, you know, if they do have cerebral palsy or if they are a CP, you know, kiddo with, other dysfunction or they're an 80 year old that, you know, recently had a hip surgery. There's, there's so many various, um, you know, patterns that can present themselves. But the coolest thing is, as you mentioned, you know, using respiration and using some of these positional activities to address neurologically what at the time you're trying, you know, you're trying to stretch and ham stretch a hamstring that doesn't want to be stretched because of the position it's in or you're trying to do some type of mobility work with these you know traditional methodologies that you know now I think you can appreciate the fact that there's so much different ways and other ways to intervene and and kind of repattern and reposition those outcomes so it's so cool to have that background and have that traditional kind of piece of your mind that says okay this is how I'm doing things but then you take a course and you take your first Myokin course in 09 with James and as you mentioned you're like the one person in the room that wasn't in the same setting as everyone else and you're like what in the heck did I get myself into yeah so. I mean honestly it was probably a pretty selfish reason I wanted to fix my own self 
Yeah. Right? But then as you learn about it, it's like, this is a human thing. This is not an adult thing. Yeah. So, or, yeah. It's not, you know, it's, as we just mentioned, it's not a anything. It's a all thing. It's, it's the whole system. So let's kind of uh, hone in on that first experience and mention just briefly again, after you, you know, you went back to, to work on some of your own dysfunction with, with Kim and you went back to, to see some of the Duke, you know, more clinical sports, sports related PTs. I'm assuming at that point, Kim had, had already taken a few courses and kind of was maybe showing you or, or pushing a little bit of activity your way as far as and things like that. But how did you actually get to your first course and who was that, that kind of introduced you to some activity? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember being in the training room or being in the clinic at Duke and Kim's, you know, there was, it was a big open space, lots of treatment tables and lots of therapists around. And um, Kim was working with me and um, she was talking with someone at the next table. I don't remember who it was. It was probably Alana Baker or Jamie Blanton or someone. And um, she was saying like, Hey, you know, to the other therapist, did you hear that Ron's now thinking about this? And Ron's think, you know, Ron says this about this and Ron and Ron and Ron. And I'm like, who is this Ron guy? Like, come on, fill me. Like I was, first of all, just surprised she was calling someone by their first name and that they're like this sounded like this guru or this entity that was just like this seer of all things. And I was just intrigued. And And so the more I asked her about it, she is the one who said, oh, he is the director of the Postural Restoration Institute. And these are the classes. And so she is the one who basically led me to, to that first my current course. life. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's so fun to hear stories like that because, you know, a lot of those people are now in their own settings throughout the country in different clinics and still involved with, you know, PRI and using it. And at the time you, you're like, you don't realize how connected you can stay to those people because of, you know, where you are and, and how you're practicing and things like that. So, you know, we, we love Kim and, and uh, we love seeing her when we can. She's often, you know, either for those that don't know Kim Kaiser, she's uh, she also enlists in the military and, and she's on duty and, and has different things once in a while. So she might be embarrassed by me saying this, but she's not just in the middle. She's a captain. Yeah. In the reserves. Like she's and, a bad ASS. Like she's the, she's the deal. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at the same time, you may never know it if you, let's right. say you take it because she's so sweet and she's so down to earth and so yeah. honest and yeah. open. She's just she's awesome. Great. And the only reason I mentioned that is because often we wish we saw her more, but she's so busy and she's so active with so many different things that um, we're lucky to see her when we can. But yeah. So your first course, Myokin, this was 2009. So the Institute had been around for, you know, about a decade or nine or 10 years. What was next? I mean, you mentioned kind of being ingrained in that first course and, and seeing things for the first time. Did you immediately, you know, at that point, where did you go back to, or who did you go back and talk to about this? Were you still in the Duke setting? And then as you progressed, kind of what led you to your next courses and how did that evolution work out? Yes. So I went back to Duke and I worked, you know, trying to decide how I was going to use this material with my kids. There was no one, there was one other person actually 
Her name is Christy Duke, ironically enough. And yeah. she had taken a, I think, I'm not sure if she had taken a class by then, but if not, she shortly after that took a class or two. Um, and so we would kind of bounce ideas off each other at, at points, but it, it's hard, you know, when you only have one other person. And I think at some points I was working at, in acute and she was an outpatient. So we weren't kind of in the same exact location, but it just got to the point where I was kind of feeling like if I want to do this and do it well and kind of really understand this science better, I feel like I really need to have some mentors who are certified and understand you know, this stuff better than I do. Cause it's a struggle when you're out there by yourself, yeah. especially when you have patients who can't follow direction. So you're, you have every idea and how you might want to do it, but you got to play a game in the, yeah. in the meantime, and then things kind of can get lost a little bit, but it was in, I think about 2012 or 13. I can't really remember um, around that time where I went to a class um, I think it was pelvis or maybe postural respiration it, at Advanced Physical Therapy, which is a clinic down the street in Chapel Hill, owned by Susan Henning and Jean Massé. And I, saw, I walked in. I didn't know them. I just knew they, had a, they were hosting a PRI class. And I um, was signing in at the front desk, and I noticed a little sign on the desk that said, we're hiring. And so the rest is history. I was like, oh, I could I could maybe work here with, and it's so close. I don't have to move. I'm like, it just happened. It was like so lucky. And so I did the, the Duke and um, advanced thing for a, a couple of years, kind of half part-time at both just to see how it was going to work. And if I was going to even be able to do PRI with kids the way I, I kind of felt like I wanted to. And then I feel like I remember my last day at Duke was like May 2nd, 2014. That date just sticks in my head because it was a pretty <laughs> big deal. Well, and sad at the let same time. Let go yeah. of Duke because that's where I was for so long. And, you know, I had a great group of clinicians that I worked with and could network with and a great patient clientele. But I was like, I think I really want to see how far this PRI thing can go with kids. So, yep. So Jean and Susan and also Joe Belding were really great, um, great mentors. They had study groups every week that we could just talk about. You know, and you still do, and we still do exactly. Yeah. We actually had one today. Yeah, it's Wednesday. <laughs> we yeah, but it was yeah. still. Yeah, we talked about the recent. Susan talked about the recent um, impingement and instability. Yeah, class. well, anyway, it's, go ahead, it's so funny. Just again, how you know you, we talked about your history and and getting into PT school and just how these things work out in life and it's often like people do attend it's obviously easier to go to a course that's close to you. And, you know, in this case, it was just down the road and you walk in and the rest is literally history and, and you've been there since. So, I mean, I just um, feel so fortunate to have had them be all so close. Yeah. And at that point, you remember Lisa had, you know, they were obviously probably a center already. And, and I don't know, um, if Jean had gone through credentialing yet, or if they were all credentialed, or? I think when I joined, uh, only Susan and Joe were credentialed, I'm pretty sure. Uh, because I remember, I, I think Jean started, I think she, 2013, I think she got so credentialed. Maybe. And then I did it the next year, but I had been there a couple years prior doing like the part-time thing back yeah. and forth before I left to go full-time. And then I, yeah, I did it the year after. Yeah. But yeah, it was great to have, you know, watch someone go through it before me. 
Well, and that's kind of, I wanted to get my head straight here because I, I was pretty sure that you didn't go through the same class. And so Jean just was one year ahead of you and you could learn a little bit off of her. And while she went through it, thank you, Jean, you know, giving us, giving you the kind of the highlight and the, the yeah. down She was supportive. She didn't give away any secrets, but she was very supportive. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, briefly, while we're on the topic, just kind of mention, you know, based off of your mentorship from that group and your involvement and becoming really part of that family and working there and setting up your clinical practice, I'm pretty sure I can guess how you got down the route of credentialing because of who you were around. But was, was it something, you know, this is kind of a tough question, Lisa, but today, as we look back on it, do you, do you feel as though you would have necessarily gone through credentialing had it not been for those individuals around you? Oh, I don't know. I've never thought of it like that. I, that's a hard question. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I was pretty uh, focused on learning it because I just was so frustrated with not seeing the results I was hoping for uh, in the population I had. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. potentially. Well, and maybe the better way to phrase it is, I guess, just walk us through a little bit of how, how you did eventually go through credentialing and, and, you know, I assume that they were a large part of that and there to mentor you and guide you and things like that. But, you know, as you're, again, you're just setting up this new setting in your life and trying to integrate with, within your own pediatric practice. But at the same time, you probably got to that credentialing, credentialing class and, you may have all you may have also been the only one working in pediatrics then you know you're around these other PR, prcs at the time that that were in your same class but what was that process like for you having to then incorporate it back into your own pediatric setting is there anyone that was similar in your class that you can remember or activities that you did i mean were they were you directly able to just go back and apply that into pediatrics or how did you kind of get your feet wet within, within the clinical setting? I mean, I think I was using it for a few years before I met, you know, the advanced crew. And then when I was able to have the opportunity to have weekly meetings about stuff, like they, I felt like those guys knew so much more than I did that I kind of was like, Ooh, if I, study hard and learn this, I probably could get credential, you know, like I could yeah. sit for it. Yeah. And then my class, if anyone from my class is listening, shout out to you guys. Um, I do just want to tell a really quick story. So do you know the song, um, No Rain by Blind Melon? Do you remember them? I would probably, I've, I've heard of the title and the band. I don't, I don't remember the song, but. So I only sing in the shower and I'm not about to sing on a podcast. But well, don't, yeah. If you don't know, <laughs> if you don't. We'll look it up after. It's, so the video is this little girl in a bumblebee costume and she's going around town tap dancing in her bumblebee costume for all people to try to get them to smile and to like her. And everyone just is like looking away and not like paying her any mind. And the poor little girl gets so depressed. You know, the music's playing in the background. Yeah, yeah. She gets so depressed and bummed down and she's walking along, like kicking the can down the road. And she looks up and she sees this grassy field with a nice big gate. And she walks up to the gate and she's looking in the, into the field. And there are all these people dressed in bumblebee costumes dancing around they're adults kids whatever and she's just like oh my people I yeah. 
you're all my people. And so that's kind of how I felt with the PR, PRC process. Like I just, it was just such a fun experience and I loved everyone in my class. And you asked me if there was anyone else who um, maybe kind of had a little bit of a pediatric uh, influence in them. And I, I, I remember Jennifer Bullock. I mean, I think she, she's such an outside of the box thinker. Um, and she's had some personal experience with kids with special needs and um, she just has some great ideas. And I remember listening to her speak in the little round table yeah. conversation. And yeah, she, she, I don't think she's purely a pediatric PT. Yeah. I know she sees adults too, but she's one that I connected with really well. And to this day, we're still really great friends. Yeah. And, Ren, and you know, I could Ren um, McLaughlin, I could yeah. name it was just such a great class. It we really we say that about every year. And, yeah. you know, you mentioned that kind of analogy of, of finding your people, which now I definitely have to go watch the video. But um, It's great. You know, it has a way of bringing people together to, it's not even that you're in the same settings or you work with the same clients or the same people. It's just that you think the same way. You know, you exactly. find other people that are thinking the way you think the backstories are all different. We're all individuals and people come in with, with so much past history. That is what makes them who they are today. And then you find other people that are exactly the same. And it's really fun to, to be a part of and watch. It's, it's, you know, we always yes. say it, it's our favorite part of the year and it's, yeah, it's the same every time. Pediatrics aside, I just listened to Michael Mullins interview with you. And he's mentioned, you know, when I, when you go to a class, especially at the Institute or anywhere in the country and you walk in the door and you know, you have all these people here who it's like a reunion. Like you yeah. make friends, like good friends with people from across the country and in other countries. And it's just such a great community. Yeah. I'm just so thankful for the community that your dad has built because it's just such a great welcoming and enriching and yeah. nourishing environment. And I love it. It's, uh, it's really the reason why, you know, I've, I've had a hard time walking away to do anything else, Lisa. It's, it's, part, of, it. it's part of all of us. And it's, yeah. it's really something that we've all, not just us at the Institute, but this year we've all struggled with, you know, every single one of us. And thankfully we have these opportunities to, you know, as Michael said, everything we're doing is either virtual or phone calls or telehealth or things like this. But without those people in your lives, you wouldn't even have that connection, you know, True. and whether it's in person or not in person, you still have people around you because of, you know, this community. So kind of past credentialing and, and after that certification, and um, we briefly have been discussing your, you know, your presence and involvement at advance uh, with Susan and Jean and Joe. And I think it's so funny, you know, you mentioned, uh, it just happens to be Wednesday. And I know you guys meet every Wednesday for your PRI study session, but if you kind of go back to the, to the time you were hired and maybe not necessarily that far, but how, you know, again, taking PRI incorporating into pediatrics, as you mentioned, you had a couple years kind of half and half with there and Duke and getting your feet wet, but those early years, Lisa, you know, how did you, today we'll get into, you know, your pediatrics course that we're so excited about, PRI Integration for Pediatrics, but where did you even begin to start 
putting these activities together and your clinical, you call it play. You have to play with these kids in order to get them to listen and do things that you need them to do. And just kind of discuss with our listeners a little bit of like how you incorporated PRI into traditional, you know, PED activities and meld those together into these positional based play activities that, that, Quite honestly, I think you're pretty famous for today. You have such a, <laughs> you have such a wealth of documented activities that you put together in this course, and I'm excited to get into it. But how did it, how did that go for you to even start? Like, how did you even know where to start to begin to implement PRI? Basically, one kid at a time. Like, I can remember, <laughs> I can remember, you know, looking over my course or my caseload for the next day, thinking like. Hmm, who am I going to try some of this crazy stuff with? <laughs> who might I? And you know, it's, I remember having the sheet with all the tests on it and like reviewing what every test was and trying to figure out like who I was going to start with. It was kind of nerve wracking. I mean, you know, I'm also NDT certified. And so when I got that certification, it's kind of a paradigm, a little bit of a paradigm shift with how you're going to start to implement it. And you just kind of have to take that leap and just say, okay, I'm just going to pick two kids off my caseload this week and do what I can. And, you know, maybe it's a, a family that has parents who are, you know, a nice conversation with, or that they trust you and you, and you know that they're not going to kind of be upset if you try a test and it fails or, you know, something yeah. like that. So you just have to kind of take a take a look at your patients and say who am I just going to be brave with and then just try something new with well um, and at the same time you have to read you know really how brave they are going to be and like you said whether that's the parents involved or the kids themselves who are these individuals that I can actually play with you know yeah you're kind of playing with them while you're getting them to play back with you exactly um and Right. And then once you, you might do a test and then say, okay, let's go play. Let's do. And then you come back and you do the test and it's different. And you're like, okay, that's, you know, okay, next week I'm doing four patients next week, you know, and you just, you kind of build confidence. And of course you have those moments where you're like, oh, yep, that didn't work. I mean, yeah. we have this saying in pediatrics that I think I learned in my NDT training. It's something like if, if it works, it's treatment. If it doesn't work, it's assessment. Like if you try a cool task or a game with a kid and they're like, it falls apart. You're like, okay, that assessment tells me that we need to move away from that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if it works, you keep going and it's treatment. Yep. So, yep. Anyway. Well, you know, before we get off the topic of kind of your current setting at advance, I want to briefly mention just, you know, how involved all of you are with, with Schroth-based um, evaluation and scoliosis it kind of leads into my question about the, some of the common diagnoses and dysfunction, disorders, diseases, whatever you want to label them as. But, you know, you're in a group that is so well-versed in the treatment and, you know, really the prevention of, of further scoliotic issues. But was that a large part of your clientele or your client base, you know, within pediatrics itself do a lot of these kiddos that you treat come in with scoliosis? Is that more of the colleagues around you that are doing scoliosis? And again, this is not necessarily currently, but you know, back when you were trying to really get involved and um, build your clientele, what were some of the, yeah. the most common, common cases that you saw come through your door? So when I was at Duke, 
we saw virtually no kids with idiopathic scoliosis for like preventative treatment and therapy to prevent surgery. That didn't really come until I went to advance. And, you know, because I was in a private practice treating kids, the, the scheduling of them, I mean, from three o'clock to six o'clock were the after school times. And those were the times where we were trying to fill and build a caseload for me. Cause it's really hard when you're not in a major medical center, because in North Carolina, where I am, Duke refers to Duke, UNC refers to, so it's like really hard to get, you know, find the clients and the patients who aren't already involved with some type of PT network. So Susan, I remember it so clearly, we were in the back office and she came to me and she said, you know, there's this nine day course called Shrope that you can get certified in. It's in Wisconsin. You go for nine days and you're certified. We can treat patients with scoliosis. And I was like, huh, well, isn't that interesting? And, you know, ignorant to the fact of even what scoliosis was at the time or how the patterns interplayed with PRI. Um, it was just really a way to get young, younger people in and to, to kind of start to develop a niche. And so you know, Jean and Susan did it. And then I followed the next year, I think, and we all went back for C2. And it just, it's, it's, it's uncanny how similar the treatments are. And it just made sense. And it's just, it's been a really great evolution ever since. And we've been able to build a really strong reputation, I'd say, of being some of the more reputable treaters of patients with scoliosis in our area. Um, we have another younger person, Molly Miller, who's learning. She, she has her shroth and she's, you know, learning more about PRI. And um, so the four of us are kind of like, it's, it's just really great because we can play off of each other and, and run cases by each other and get support from each other, especially when we have really challenging, tricky yeah. curves and things like that. So, well, and yeah, it's, it's that kind of answers, you know, in a way you kind of built your clinical practice around that niche, as you called it, and underlying all of us is, is curvatures. And at the time, you know, I, I know very little about presentations and, and, you know, the different ages that these things happen and start to develop. But basically everything I know is from listening to you. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, walk us through really from, from that point in time to becoming certified through them and then, you know, molding it into your guys' clinic and bouncing off of each other and seeing all these different cases. As you mentioned, I'm not sure typical peds or pediatrics, pediatrics in general at the time sounds like didn't really look at the preventative nature of of scoliotic, you know, idiopathic scoliosis and these curvatures, but just walk us through a little bit of how you address the common, let's say, you know, walk us through the different ages that some of these, these curves evolve, but at what point do they come in your door? What is the typical age for that at? And how then you guys work as a team to manage, you know, those diagnoses and use PRI as a tool to do so? Yeah. So, you know, I think that just from an evolutionary perspective, um, Shroth has become a lot more mainstream and a lot more known. And so we do it. The, some of the, the PTs at Duke also are now trained in Shroth. So had I stayed there, 
maybe I would have eventually fallen into that. So you asked me earlier, yeah. would I have, you know, gotten on sped? It's hard to know, but, um, but yes, back to advance. Um, I think the youngest kid that I've started with, with idiopathic scoliosis was probably five years old. And I'll treat someone up until early adulthood. I don't like to treat early adult. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I will if, if, you know, other therapists are busy, but I, I really like to treat um, the younger kids more. The seven, eight, nine, ten ish age is like my favorite. Right before those teenage years. <laughs> exactly. Because they're just, they'll try anything. They're like, whatever. Yeah, sure. You want me to wear different shoes? No problem. But when they're a teenager, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm not wearing those shoes. They're the wrong color. It's just like such a different battle. But anyway, um, Jean and Susan will treat, and Molly too, to any age. So they're really the, the crew that treats the older population. And I think Susan will treat some teenagers. Molly has treated some teenagers. But yeah, that's, the, as, that's kind as of the far as, up for yeah. what we're doing. Well, as far as curvatures themselves, Lisa, with your, you know, obviously you talk about that age breakup and, and the different people within your clinic that kind of, you know, you all, you all can treat any age, but you all kind of have your own interests and, you know, your own areas. But do you find that obviously, you know, for anyone that is new to idiopathic scoliosis or these curvatures or natural curvatures even, do you find that the clients or the kids that you work with, you know, at an early age, you know, they're, they're by far less likely to then progress to being seen as a teenager or as an adult, or basically, I guess what I'm getting at is the power and the, you know, really the benefit of that early intervention versus having the, them come in where it's already further developed. So, of course, the sooner we can get our hands on them, the better. Um, it's really an unpredictable diagnosis. Um, some curves, no matter what you do and what kind of an awesome brace you have, it's going to get worse no matter what. Sometimes that happens. And sometimes it could be a kiddo who just really doesn't do a good job wearing their brace and really doesn't get to do a good job doing their exercises and they can get better. So it's just, you know, and there's, of course, a, a functional versus structural curve kind of thing in there. And we can maybe save that for a scoliosis podcast if you want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's very variable is, is the best I can say yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, and like you said, it's, it's really comes down to with any, with any diagnoses or any form of treatment, you know, the earlier you're able to detect and, and screen and evaluate and then get people yeah. into these activities. And exactly. I mean, I will say kids with scoliosis are a large part of my caseload right now, but the other, the biggest, the second biggest uh, category of kids that I probably see are kids who just um, don't really have a diagnosis, but they're maybe not keeping up with their peers or they're quote clumsy. They've been labeled as that, unfortunately, or they're just kind they're of just like, lost. Or, or the parents look at them and they say, she has awful posture. Like what's the deal here? And so, um, yeah. And it's just such a cool, that's a cool category for me because PRI is like all about that. It's yep. kids who don't know where they are in space. It's kids who can't feel the floor. They don't know they have abs. They don't know, you know, maybe they're not using their eyes properly or they're not 
maybe they never crawled and they didn't have a developmental sequence that would be um, conducive to, you know, not needing PT. So, yeah. but I love that category of kids too. And then of course I have a handful of kids with CP and um, some more involved diagnoses that I'm just really enjoying using PRI with because it makes a big difference. And then sometimes I get kids who have been to three different PTs and like, well, we just need to try something different and your website looks different and here we are. Yeah. And I'm like, yes. Because yeah, we, <laughs> we, we are help. different and we can yeah. do different things. And it's yeah. Awesome. Kind of moving on from, from scoliosis, as you mentioned, I'd love to, to get all of you guys to, together and, and have more of a scoliosis uh, discussion. But what I want to kind of segue that into is your involvement in more of the faculty role with the Institute. And, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, you know, all of you have been at this point, I, I don't even know the amount of years that probably even maybe before you were there, I'm not sure when Susan started, you know, taking part in advanced integration and having really a, a good chunk of dedicated, you know, discussion on the fourth day of our advanced integration course. But was, was that your first kind of involvement as, you know, at that point you weren't necessarily faculty, but you were teaching during that advanced integration course on the fourth day, you and, and Susan and Jean, you know, break down all these kind of things that we're discussing as far as scoliotic curves and interventions. But, you know, walk us to kind of the route of you becoming part of the faculty and eventually that's leading us into this pediatric course that we have available today. But was that kind of the start as you progress, you know, working with Jean and, and Susan during advanced integration? So when I was a kid, I'm just kidding. You know, <laughs> well, it all started when I was, when I was born. Um, I'm kind of kidding, but you know, I've always really wanted to be a teacher quite honestly, but never just, uh, I don't know why I never went into teaching as a profession. I think I just like science better at that point. Um, but my mom tells this story. When I was a kid, I used to like rush through my work in grade school and then walk around the class and help other kids. I don't know. She says that I did that. I thought you would say you were going to grade other kids. Oh, no. I, I just would grading. try to help them like figure out what they're supposed to do. I guess my third grade teacher told my mom I did that. I don't really remember it. Um, but honestly, the reason I stuck around for the third year of the DPT program at Duke was because at the time they were billing it as like, if you want to teach in a curriculum for PT school, you need a doctorate. You know, it turns out, it's, at least in this area, they're still really wanting people to have a PhD. Um, but I think they were trying to sell the DPT at the time. So I took the bait and <laughs> ran with it. Um, but anyway, I did a bunch of guest lectures at Duke, you know, through whatever classes and the, the pediatric faculty positions at Duke never opened up. Um, the same people are actually still there. Um, same with UNC. So um, when I was learning this PRI stuff and I, I was like, you know, other therapists needs and other pediatric therapists kind of would be really great if they knew this stuff. And so then I was like, oh, you know, thinking about wanting to teach it again or teach in that, in that scenario um, too. So that's kind of where it came from. And I just kept trying to work hard on games and toys and, you know, things to get them to be engaged with doing PRI activities. And um, so I guess, yeah. So 
from, you know, the, the evolving or evolution of the pediatrics course itself, obviously as you grew your integration of PD, PRI into pediatrics, you know, uh, you've been doing it long enough and within your clinical practice long enough to have put together all these activities. You have these intervention strategies, you have certain ways of testing these kids and evaluating them on a, you know, a pediatric level, but at the same time, utilizing PRI activities. Was it, just mention a little bit about how you literally kind of even started having the conversations about a PRI for pediatrics course Maybe it was James that came to you. I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm not privy to this, to this uh, situation. I haven't really, yeah. I haven't really, um, you know, ever really heard the story about it. But did James come to you? Was it your involvement at Advance? And slowly over time, we're like, you know, Lisa's got to get this course together. But mm -hmm. how did it all come about? So I remember Ron came to our clinic, I think, to maybe teach a class. It was, this was before I was certified. And I had a quick moment with him. And you know, he, he saw the pediatric brochure in the foyer or something. And I'm like, Ron, that's me. I want to, I want to teach this stuff. And he's like, well, we got to get you certified first. So I was like, okay, get certified. <laughs> and I said to myself, when I'm at, after I get certified, I'm going to hand Ron. I didn't realize that James was the affiliate coordinator at the time. I'm going to hand him my application to teach that day. As soon as I get certified, because I was just so eager to get in there, you know? And so I ended up giving it to James you know, at PRC. Yeah. And then we kind of, you know, it, it takes a long, I think I was so gung ho about it that it was just like, okay, wait, hold, hold, hold. You, you got to get some, you got to get some curriculum established. You got to get some foundational work here. So over the next few years, I just kind of kept my nose to the grindstone and tried to decide like, how, how are we going to introduce this stuff to clinicians who have never heard about PRI and who work with patients who don't follow direction well? <laughs> yeah. And so James has been great through the whole process. I mean, a large part of the organization of our, our pediatrics course, I owe to him because he just did a really good job of seeing the forest while I was too busy weeding through the trees. And so, yeah, it kind of, well, it kind of evolved. And, you know, we, we talked before we started how we have, you know, all these other affiliate courses and, and programs that have occurred in the past. And, you know, part of what, part of what his experience, you know, putting together your course draws off of all those past experiences of, Hey, you know, this didn't work out or people really respond well to this, or, you know, since you are talking about peds, I think we need to try this. You know, I, I mentioned to you earlier, it's really hard to compare any affiliate course within PRI to another affiliate course, you know, that they, they are kind of set up, you know, you have certain structures that work the same, but at the same time, you know, the populations are completely different. And as you mentioned, you're trying to figure out how to get PRI activities involved with kids that have the attention span of, you know, my, my dogs, basically, you know, <laughs> squirrel. <Sometimes. laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, you know, obviously that's, that's a, you know, kind of an overstatement, but you're, you're. That's where the, that's where the NDT comes in so helpfully because NDT teaches you how to use your hands. And PRI teaches you where and, you know, asymmetrically and where to use your hands. So it kind of blends really well. And I just want to give a quick shout out, RJ, to all of the, all of the affiliate courses that came before me. I mean, James with geriatrics and Julie with fitness and movement. I think Alan Groover is the gentleman who 
Is that right? Who created the yeah, baseball uh, class? You know, early on, he was definitely involved with baseball. And, and even before that, you know, we at one point. Um, now it's been. Yeah. We dabbled with, uh, you know, we've had a couple of yoga um, courses. Oh, right. Emily Pernier yeah. with yoga. So and there's all these different Sarah. areas. Yep. For Pilates. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just so lucky that they kind of paved the way. And it was, I, I definitely benefited from every single one of those courses, the process that those people went through to determine how best to teach this stuff. I, I have a little taste of each one of them, you know, that I got to benefit from. So yeah. I just wanted to give a big shout out to all of them because I'm very thankful and grateful to them. Well, and you mentioned kind of, you know, being so gung-ho and, and I think a lot of the times we're gung-ho to get material out to people too, but a lot of the, the times I think it's, it's underappreciated how much effort and time and, you know, resources that go into even structuring and putting a course like, like your pediatrics course together, every single, every single course. And that's part of what makes it so cool is like, I think fitness is now on like maybe it's 13th version or, you know, it's every course evolves over time. So where you started with your first course and where you go with your next course and your next course and the next time you teach it, it's, it's never the same course twice and they evolve so often. And so many times that you teach them, you learn like, Hey, this didn't work. And next time I teach it, I'm going to change that or revise that and update it. So it's so underappreciated how much effort goes into each version of these courses. And I think, is this your third, second, second time? So this time is going to be different from your last and the next time will be different from that. So it's just so fun to watch. Well, this time is going to be a live stream. So that's going to be super fun. Yeah. Yeah. You'll do great. And, and I know the other, you know, I, I always tell people it's going to go better than you think because it's nervous and you're like, I've never done a live stream before, but <laughs> we've had really good response. So, you know, based on kind of where we're at, Lisa, and talking about this PEDS course, I did want to kind of get into just a few of some of the, you know, general um, concepts and structure of the course. We've been talking throughout this episode about how awesome your activities are and your play activities. But, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's a, a good starting point as far as putting together this course. You, of course, had to first structure these activities and how you're going to test the PRI patterns and testing within your pediatric population. But initially, what are, you know, if you can just pick maybe one or two of your favorite you know, I, I know a lot of what you do is ground-based or all fours related or things like that. But let's say even with the adults, like we have calls all the time. Well, I have a client who can't blow up a balloon. What do I do? Or I can't keep, in your case, I can't keep their attention long enough for them <laughs> to, for them to stay on a wall, you know? Yeah. So, so talk to us a little bit about yeah. just some of the some of the very general ways that you have looked at PRI activities in a traditional sense and then kind of Lisa eyes them <laughs> for the for the pediatric setting and some of the tools that that you commonly use with those techniques. Sure. So that was probably one of the most challenging things creating this course was to be keeping in mind a therapist's full continuum of a caseload. So you could have a kid who's very involved cognitively and physically to 
a child who is very not involved cognitively or physically, but just has knee pain, right? So we were trying to really make sure we encompassed everybody. And so we do have those two categories. Um, and incidentally, in pediatrics, we tend to try to not label kids because, you know, kids are going to get talked about and especially kids with special needs. So we, we focus on people first language and I do a little blurb on that. And then also just kind of, just kind of generally grouping them so that when you're a clinician in managing your caseload, if you have a child with a lot of in involvement, you can go to a certain spot in the manual that's called children who are more involved or children who are less involved. And it kind of gives you a starting point to kind of just begin to think about what kind of activities you might do with them. But it's, it's really honestly very fluid. So, you know, there's no, nothing set in stone of what category you have to go to, but we do feel like it addresses a lot of different types of kids' needs. And then we've created three tests. Um, I think most affiliate classes have three new novel tests for that population. Um, Two of the tests are probably more conducive to kids who are less involved. And then one of the tests a child with less involvement could do, but it's really geared to more for a child with more involvement. So you're basically just passively moving them through a sequence of steps that will, you know, compress their left chest wall versus compress their right, right chest wall. And then you just kind of see what their responses are. Do you notice extension out of the position on the left versus the right? Because it's just so much harder to breathe when you compress that left side versus the right side. So, so yeah, that's kind of the testing and assessment structure. And then we, James and I created this thing called the desired sequential movement guideline. And it's basically eight steps. And you basically look at the tests that you've done and you go through these steps and it kind of guides you through which treatments that you might want to choose just for a little teaser if you're wondering how it's organized but some of my favorite activities i think you asked me about right well and maybe yeah i, I definitely did and i'm interested but i think maybe a good way to do that is maybe you know you mentioned these desired movements and you call them, you know, that your different DSM levels, desired sequential movement, but maybe, you know, pick, pick an activity that would fall and, and just highlight some of your favorite activities that would fall on that less involved end of the spectrum. Let's say it's a desired movement of a level one. And then at the opposite end, a, a more involved higher level activity, and some of the differences, again, maybe one's more ground-based or one's more supportive or sitting or, or you're passively helping them versus the higher levels that, you know, are, are more independent. But maybe just pick a few off of that type of a scale. Okay, sure. So if what comes to mind, and I didn't prepare for this, but what comes to mind is like a level one would be like in the DSM would be... Um, to try to help the child get their diaphragm rotating and turning and coming back down on the left side so they can, we can start establishing a ZOA. So maybe the listeners are familiar with the left posterior capsule inhibition stretch. So one of the things I, I do with them is to have them crawl in that position. So their legs are, their left knee is over on the other side, right? They're, they're kind of yep. twisted like a pretzel. So I call it pretzel crawling. <laughs> And they might go counterclockwise around an obstacle course or some type of yeah. object, or maybe they do a figure eight, but they're, we're biasing it so that when they're doing that crawling motion, they're really compressing that left side 
in a fun kind of interactive yeah. way. Um, so that could be an example of like a DSM number one. A well, lower actually, yeah. RJ, I will say that's probably more like a three. I'm kind well, of pretty, but because yeah. the first couple of steps are kind of, kind of like not really thinking about stance just or, or weight bearing through lower extremities because some kids don't and some kids are in wheelchairs, but generally speaking, we want to get that diaphragm to go to the yeah. left and try I, to get it away. I think one of my uh, favorite things to this day that I've seen you do, Lisa, just because I, I wanted to wait to see if you would mention it, but you do the all fours and I don't know what you call it. It's kind of like a soccer goal with the straw and the, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. the cotton balls, but just get, as you mentioned, getting that posterior expansion and, um, just the rib cage to rotate and let's say you have them blow through the straw and shoot that soccer ball um, underneath their left arm or they're reaching down with the straw you know with their right arm or whatever it may be but um, yeah so we use we use feathers and puff balls and straws. Puff balls. Yep. Yeah. so it's like the all four hands and knees You're, it's a modified all four belly lift basically they just they might use one hand to hold the straw maybe not maybe they just maybe i aim the straw for them or their caregiver does and there's puff balls and feathers underneath yeah. the belly button and they just blow it to try to score a goal between their knees. Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned, that might fall somewhere in the middle because of the fact that they are, you know, positionally active. It's not a passive technique and they are ground, you know, it's gravity weight bearing. Um, and you kind of walked us through how that might be a level three or, you know, two to three or four. Um, what are some of them, you know, let's say you've been working with someone for, six, seven, eight, multiple sessions and you're, you're progressing and, and they are upright. Um, do you have some, some, you know, favorite modified activities that you would consider more of the, the upper level of that DSM? Yeah. So the one that comes to mind um, for like a level eight or like the, the end kind of is standing sticker soldier. So for standing sticker soldier, it's basically gait, but it's kind of a really exaggerated gait. So they're kind of, they're taking a step with one foot, lifting the other foot in front of them and reaching toward that foot with their opposite hand and then taking a step and switching. So it's like a march, but you have your straight leg and you're sticking your foot out in front of you and you're trying to reach it with your opposite hand. And so we'll put stickers up and down their legs. And so maybe they start with the sticker high on their hip and every step they have to take the sticker off the opposite leg as the sticker moves closer and clo you know, the, they're closer to their feet. So it's like a progression of single imbalance, hopefully in a good AFIR position on each side with a reach, with a pause, cause you have to pause there and pick the sticker off and yeah. a breath and yeah. You know, not everybody can do that, of course. But I, I don't even know if you know, I'm watching you and listening to you and I'm like, Man, I don't even know if I could do that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's obviously a, what, what is so cool. And the reason why I wanted to highlight a few of these activities, Lisa, is not only do you have to, I think everyone's at this point aware of how, you know, you talk about your NDT and the neurological side of things. Everything that you're doing with these kiddos in every one of these techniques, you have a reason for, and they oftentimes don't even understand that or know that. But, you know, you're talking about this, this sticker, you know, the soldier sticker and, <laughs> and not only do you have to incorporate all these activities into something fun for them, you also come up with great names and you have to name <laughs> them as a fun activity because then they won't be interested. Yeah. Um, 
but it's just such a, a gift you have. You know, I've heard you present a few times, as we mentioned at advance and, and through various things. I myself am so excited to, you know, be there with you and be a part of this pediatrics course. For anyone listening, you know, we do have Lisa coming here in November to do to do this integration for pediatrics course, but there's so much involvement, you know, from your end as far as these activities that often they don't even appreciate when they walk out the door. It's like you just repositioned someone while they did a pretzel crawl across the floor. And by the way, they were laughing the whole time and having fun <laughs> while they did it. So it's really yeah. a true, it's a true gift and it's so fun to watch and to see you do it. Well, you're very complimentary. I will, I just kind of feel like I get to be immature and just be a goofball. So it's kind yeah. of, it's just fun. Well, and you know, I think anyone that works with kids, you know, it, it's, it's such a, you know, special, you know, you're such a, a gifted person to be able to do that because of, you know, your daily, you know, sacrifice isn't the right word because it's so fulfilling for you. But it, I have to imagine that there is struggle because, you know, you have these cases that literally, you know, they may be special needs or they may be in a wheelchair or they may have these diagnoses or diseases or, you know, all various forms of the spectrum. And here you're just trying to get them to breathe out and exhale. And if you're lucky, get a pause in there. Exactly. So. I'm working with a young preteen teenager right now with arthrogryposis. I don't know if you know what that is, but for listeners, it's, it's a congenital genetic disease where joints and bones just kind of don't work. And so this little guy, I mean, he basically has very little femoral head, his pelvis. I mean, he, he has zero to 10 degrees of knee flexion on either side and a very limited thorax and um, elbow contractures, but he's, he's such, he's brilliant. He's cognitively intact and just a brilliant young man and such a cool kid, but it's just been amazing. Like I can't do a 90, 90 hip lift with him. He can't get into the position, but just doing rib cage work and knowing, you know, again, treating the egg, it's just been, um, I think he, he says he can breathe better. He sleeps better. He has more energy and his gait is very taxing and ener energy um, consuming. So for him to be able to walk even a little bit farther just because he can breathe better is really meaningful to him. So just to say that, you know, and, and I know I have colleagues who are working with, you know, patients with Parkinson's and patients with other really, you know, devastating issues. And it's just so cool that PRI can make a difference in so many different diagnostic areas and yeah. areas of the lifespan. I mean, it's just, and really, it's really, it, it's really it, amazing. It overlaps, you know, every day. And, you know, we, we've mentioned neurology several times, but there comes to a point where, you know, someone with, with Parkinson's or different, uh, you know, whether it be PD or different neurological issues or, there comes to a, a level where they're really no different with how, you know, how they're looked at from another PRI provider versus how you're looking at that, that young boy with, you know, his issues. So it, as you mentioned, um, just getting them breathing better and, and these baby steps, it really is just all these baby steps that, that lead to progression and, and, 
you know, overall better outcomes. So it kind of piggybacks off of our early intervention, you know, discussion. At that point, we were kind of discussing scoliosis, but, you know, the earlier you can get these kids mobile and moving and, and sometimes it's so hard. I know, you know, you could speak for days on these cases that you're, like you said, you're yeah. lucky, you're lucky just to get them to, to breathe. So sometimes, yeah. 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 Well, Lisa, we are so excited for, for your, you know, continued uh, evolution with this pediatrics course. As I mentioned, it's, it's already evolved and it's continues to evolve because you're such a great clinician and you bring your clinical experience into that course material. And then we're hopeful that other people that take the course, you know, as, as you're hopeful, you know, you, you learn from other clinicians, you know, you, you learn from people around you, you learn from your, your clientele and your patients you work with. And then, you know, talk about another gift is to be able to share that with others and then hopefully have them go and, and use it and, and really utilize it. So it's so exciting. As we wrap up, Lisa, uh, I know you're still involved with, you know, other things outside of this PEDS course and pediatrics in general. You know, you guys do, you still do a lot with, with Shroth and, and different um, ways of incorporating scoliosis professionally and you guys put together kind of a PRI based approach to that as far as teaching others and sharing your methods. But I, I briefly want to mention I've I've heard some circulation about possibly a new project that <laughs> is, take, is taking you back to the university setting. Yeah. So we, we, we discussed teaching in universities and maybe walk us through some of your like I said, as we wrap up, some of the other things going on and things that are exciting to you and that you're currently working on outside of, of PRI. So there's a small private university um, about an hour, 45 minutes away from here called High Point University, and they have a pretty brand new PT school. And one of my former students is on faculty there. And so she reached out to me to, to ask if I would be interested in teaching a selective course on PRI. And so... Of course, the Institute is fully supportive and that's hopefully going to start in May. Hopefully it'll be live and in person, but we'll have to wait and see what happens with COVID, of course, fingers crossed, but by yeah, then you'll really be excited. A, by then you'll be a, a live stream professional. So even if it yeah. doesn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I'm really just excited to reach kids. I call them kids, but reach students in school before they get a chance, you know, before they get out and develop other methodology not you know pri works well with everything but yeah. sometimes it's a hard paradigm shift for clinicians who are pretty established so it'll be really a, i'm very interested and excited about that opportunity to you know teach them about yeah. Yeah. asymmetrical breathing yeah cool. and, and yeah. we're we're just as excited and i know the more as you mentioned the more interactive conversation we can have with people at that level just continues to grow, you know, the same thought processing. So that's, that's so their mind exciting. open, yeah. right. To, to new ideas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Lisa, again, I appreciate you sharing your time with us and with, with myself and all of our listeners today for anyone that at this point is unfamiliar, you know, we've mentioned your current setting at advanced physical therapy, but as we wrap up, Lisa, maybe just mention we're now hitting the fall months and, you know, just highlight some of your, your really passions in life. And, you know, I assume 
it's hard to have anyone on this podcast and not say, well, I love to read and, but, but <laughs> I love um, to study PRI. That's all yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I already know that, but, yeah. um, but, okay. uh, no, just kind of within your own setting and outside of PRI and work, you know, some of your, yeah, your most engaging activities. So today was an absolute perfect weather day in North Carolina. There was no humidity, a nice breeze, lots of sun and very cool fall temperatures. And so I love getting out in the yard and landscaping and um, gardening and all things outdoors, running, hiking. Okay, let's say jogging to be real. Jogging, <laughs> hiking, um, you know, walking the dog and just being out there, having a catch with lacrosse every once in a while. But yeah, I mean, I like to do pottery on a wheel every once in a while whenever I can get to the studio and just get your mind. Yeah, just yeah, be, I be like, creative. I've done a lot of Special Olympics volunteering. So those those kids are so fun to work with and adults, yeah. too, I should say. But yeah. anyway, yeah, well, yeah and reading it's... and studying PRI. And... <laughs> <laughs> and the things I told you not to mention. No, yeah. no I'm glad yeah, to hear. I know. Uh, you know, you, you guys have had a hot, humid summer and, and it's, it's great to hear that you're finally getting outside yes. and, and being comfortable. So. Much needed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, Lisa, again, again, I, uh, I'm so honored to have you on today and I look forward to seeing you a little over a month from now. So, um, yep, November 7th and 8th. Yeah, for anyone interested, there's there's seats available still that will be live streamed. Uh, Lisa's going to come join us for two days and and present this pediatrics course we've been discussing. Lisa, for anyone interested, we're going to get this on your find a provider page, and Lisa has a faculty page on our website. You know, with any of the work that you've done and and you know papers and various things that that are relevant to you know your clinical activity. So. Again, uh, thank you, and we look forward to seeing you here in a couple of weeks. Super. RJ, it was a pleasure to hang out with you. Thanks so much for asking. I was very honored to, to talk to you, and I hope to see all of you guys who might be listening someday at a course in person. Yeah. So we can give each other big hugs and, and, and celebrate and return to normal and network and visit. All right, Lisa. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, RJ. Take care. If you're interested in learning more about the Postural Restoration Institute, you can visit our website at posturalrestoration.com. You can also email me directly at info at posturalrestoration.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to see how PRI Nation is currently applying this science. As always, thank you for listening and I look forward to having you on our next episode.